All right, welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is June 25th, the year of our Lord, 2020. A vast majority of the time, I confirmed the date with Colin just moments before we come on the air. We got a fair amount to talk about tonight. Happy to have you with us. If you haven't already, subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. If you're watching us right now, it is a fact that you're already on the channel. Why not hit subscribe? And if you're listening via podcast, those five-star reviews continue to flood in. Those written reviews continue to flood in. A vast majority of them have been nice probably nicer, dare I say, than we deserve. It's really helping us, and we really appreciate it. We've been doing the Late Kick Extra podcast, which is available exclusively in podcast form every Wednesday. Of course, all the shows that we do on YouTube are also uploaded via podcast. So there's a lot to be had there. May even be some more content in the future that's more varied in nature. So I listen to you nearly exclusively when it comes to formatting our shows because the show belongs to you anyway. And you guys had a lot better ideas than I would ever have. And you guys have submitted a lot better questions than I could ever come up with as topics. And in fact, in a roundabout way, I'm going to hit on a couple of those during the show tonight. We are going to revisit a question that I sort of skimmed the surface of on the last edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast. And then I'm going to talk about big games that don't necessarily involve the preseason playoff favorites, the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the Clemsons of the world. Because there are some huge matchups on the, especially the out-of-conference college football schedule this year that I think we need to talk about. There is a growing I would even call it a sizable at this point, contingent of LSU doubters that have popped back up. Going to address that. And I'm also going to address, I don't know why we didn't start with this guy, Josh Gaddis. You know, we've been doing our series, the most important in college football this year. And to be honest, if you're talking about a non-head coach and you're talking about a non-Heisman favorite quarterback, I think Josh Gaddis can be right at the top of the list. We've done Sam Howell at UNC. Uh, We've done Kyle Trask, Clay Helton. So we've done a few guys. We're going to do Josh Gaddis tonight. All that straight ahead. So let's dive in here. As I said, we were doing the Late Kick Extra podcast this week. I recorded it down in Columbus. I made a brief trip home over the weekend. And so I'm reading up and down the list of questions. And normally what we like to do is we like to bump one of the questions that apply to a lot of people to the front. That's normally what we're going to title the podcast. This is in Tani's hands. He handles the podcasting. But this week's edition had at the front of it a question about the SEC. Now, a lot of you have feelings on the SEC. It's either a love or a hate. Very few people are indifferent on the SEC, which always makes it a great idea for a topic. Well, I had in the email inbox sent to me a question. And it was very simple. It just said, will the SEC as a conference ever take a back seat to anyone else again? So I answered it shortly, but I want to answer it in a more extended form here. Let's talk about this a second. What do we think? What do you guys think about this? I, the first thing that came to my mind is taking a back seat for a moment versus taking a back seat for an extended period of time. Two very different concepts. There have been years, even in the last 15 or so years, where it's been a general consensus the SEC has been on top of or right at the top of the sport of college football. There have been some years, even in the last decade, where you may pop your head up any given year and say, hey, this year, I think the, I think the Big Ten may be a little bit better. We've seen that. That's not ancient history. That's recent history but it hasn't been extended. Over an extended period of time, if you were to be in the year 2050 and you just take the magnifying glass and kind of scan it across the length of the sport, yeah, this has been a sustained run of dominance for the SEC. So I counted three ways, really, that you could see 
a noticeable shift in the sport. Just an entire dynamic shift to where you have a prolonged period where the SEC is not on top of the sport as a collective. Now, you could ask the side question, does this really matter? Because conferences don't win championships, teams win championships. This is the rebuttal I hear a lot. It's valid. So I'm not saying it's any kind of propaganda that gets pumped out. But I came up with three ways. If you care about conference supremacy and whatnot, and I'm going to get to those in a second, but just quickly, and I kind of went down this list in an abbreviated manner on the podcast The reason why this is happening is, I think in most cases, pretty obvious. All the ingredients are in place. Geography is a great built-in advantage. Weather is a great built-in advantage. The geography, of course, meaning most of the players are down here. But also, you've got the revenue box checked, the TV money alone, much less the money that you get from the investment, the insanely high amounts of investment from all of the donor class. And you see these people sitting in Sanford Stadium. If you're watching the YouTube version, that's Bryant-Denny Stadium. Colin's showing you right now. Those people, they are heavily invested with their wallets and checkbooks as well as their hearts and their minds. So you'll never hurt for money down here. Passion leads to investment, but I'll tell you what else it leads to. And this is really why I don't think this conference is going anywhere. The revenue leading to investment leads to demand. And demand never allows a program to be bad for long. Let me check that. It never allows a program to wallow in mediocrity. See, right now we're looking at Neyland Stadium, if you're watching the YouTube version. And you may say, uh, well, Josh, there's a lot of investment at Tennessee, and there's a lot of passion at Tennessee, and Tennessee has... I don't think I need a better term. I'll just use this one. I don't necessarily lack a better term. But they have sucked water through a garden hose for over a decade now. So, hey, they've been bad. That's true. But notice, has there ever been a period there where you've had a head coach for six or seven years and they've just wallowed in mediocrity? No, they've continued to make moves. Now, eventually, logic tells us, maybe it's Jeremy Pruitt, logic tells us that Tennessee is going to knock one out of the park and they'll eventually get right. But think about it. From Auburn to Florida this year, I'm not saying Dan Mullen's under any kind of pressure, much to the dismay of what some people have suggested I've said in our comment section, but there's always pressure. Even when you're good, there's always pressure. And that's really good because pressure, you know the old analogies, it eventually produces the best product as a whole. But also, here's what else beneath the surface has benefited the SEC. Uh, Alabama has benefited the SEC. Now, there's an obvious part to that. Yeah, they've won a majority of the championships that the conference has won. But also, now we're over a decade in. We are, what, 13-some-odd years in to Nick Saban being in Alabama And for a while, they were a slam dunk number one in this conference, no equal, no one even close, and the conference had to play catch up, and the conference tried to play keep up. Georgia, Auburn, LSU, all these teams are trying to play keep up to Nick Saban at Alabama. Well, what did that do? That, by default, told those programs that what used to be good enough is no longer good enough. And so you had all kinds of upgrades. You had subtle upgrades whether it be hiring more support staff, because that's what they do at Alabama. Upgrading facilities that maybe otherwise wouldn't have been a high priority because that's what they do at Alabama. Taking recruiting even more seriously. You may have thought you were serious before, but then a guy comes to Alabama and shows you what serious actually is and what's actually possible. And so there are all these incremental upgrades across the sport, and now you look at it as a whole over a decade later, And you may hate the guy at Alabama, and you may hate the program, but yet look at your own program, look around, 
Look at the upgrades that maybe you've made. LSU is a perfect example over the past decade and ask, where did the pressure really come from for us to make a lot of these upgrades? And that's happened over most of this conference. So those are just some reasons, along with obviously the players. And so is the passion going anywhere? No. Are the players going anywhere? No. I mean, are these programs going to be picked up and dropped in a different portion of the country? No. Is the fan investment going anywhere? TV money is only going to get bigger. So all these qualifiers, they're not going anywhere. If anything, they're only going to be enhanced. So the three ways that this conference could drop off and could take a backseat, none have to do with losing ground in any of these categories. So what could happen? Well, I guess the first is someone could pull up alongside them. Someone as a conference could bypass them. It would have to be the Big Ten in my estimation. I think the ACC may be another contender, and this is miles and miles and miles away from even being funny, even being a joke. I won't even submit it to you as a joke right now in the context of the ACC. The Big Ten, you can take a little bit more seriously, but if it's not someone just girding their own loins, so to speak, and pulling up alongside or moving past the SEC. The second possibility, don't know how this would happen, is the SEC implodes. They destroy themselves from within. Again, could happen a number of different ways. Wouldn't be the first time something that looks really impressive from the outside has destroyed itself from within. You could always have that happen. Probably happens over a number of years instead of overnight. But Here's the third and probably the most likely path. The third and most likely path for the SEC taking a perceptional backseat for an extended period of time is either the ACC or the Big Ten becomes insanely top-heavy. So top-heavy to the point that they're so good at the top, it doesn't even matter what exists number four through 14 because number one, two, and three are all bona fide playoff contenders. In the Big Ten, you're probably talking about Ohio State just maintaining what they're doing. You're talking about Penn State catching up to Ohio State, and you're talking about probably Michigan catching up to Ohio State. And those three all operating at a level that warrants preseason national championship consideration in the ACC, it's very obvious. You'd have to have Florida State get its act together. You'd have to have either Miami get its act together, or you'd have to have someone like North Carolina continue for a long, long, long time on this very short sample size of a trajectory that we have for them right now. I think that's a lot more likely to happen in the Big Ten. And at that point, you wouldn't really care what Purdue is doing so much. Because if you had three bona fide playoff contenders, that would be the argument. The argument would be, hey, we're ultimately judging conferences by how many legit national championship contenders you have. And you got three or four in the SEC, we got three here, that would be the argument. But right now, I mean, the quality, top to bottom, it's really good. It's really good in the SEC. How far do you have to go? How far would you have to dig beneath the surface to find bad teams down here? You've got, um, I mean, you got Bama, LSU, Auburn, Florida, uh, Georgia, Texas A&M, You've got uh, Kentucky has been a very solid program. Tennessee has not been solid, but Tennessee is showing sure signs of coming out of the funk that they've been in for a little while. And so you, then you get into the murky water. You get into the South Carolinas and Missouri, Vanderbilt, Arkansas, but you've gone through three quarters of the conference, really. That's not an exact fraction. Before you get to what are considered genuinely bad programs, bad teams right now, that's a uh, that's a pretty good place to be. So I'm just saying that someone becomes extremely top-heavy, dominant top-heavy, 
like the Big Ten, and maybe that to answer Shane's question in the email inbox. That's probably how we arrive at a point where if in 2025 you're saying, ooh, the SEC's taking a back seat, that's probably how it happens. All right, we move on. Uh, this was kind of another question. It wasn't really posed as a question. I just had a comment the other day on Twitter. It was someone talking about out-of-conference games. It was someone really talking about which games are you most excited to go to this year? And I didn't answer, <clears throat> not because I don't have excitement, because I don't know if we're going to be able to go right now. So having said that, I'm looking around, and the context of the question that was given to me afterwards, it was in the form of a question, was take Alabama out of it, take Ohio State, take Clemson out of it. Find me the games that are most important. Find me the one game that you pinpoint on the college football schedule. It could be conference, could be non-conference that's most important. So because I grew up in the South and you took Alabama and Clemson out of it, I went to Georgia, Florida. You could say uh, LSU, Auburn. That's a big one. I mean, all these teams are going to be in the national conversation, but I decided to go outside of the South for the answer. There's a game that's tentatively scheduled to be played in Lambeau Field this year. Notre Dame's playing like half a dozen neutral site games this year. And one of them is against Wisconsin. These teams haven't played for a long, long time. And they're going to, again, according to schedule, play, I believe it's October 3rd. It's like week four, week five. They're going to play against Wisconsin or the Notre Dame Fighting Irish in Lambeau Field in Green Bay. Now this one will be awesome to be at. And this one has awesome ramifications for the national championship, at the very least, the playoff picture. I think that Notre Dame's college football playoff chances are on the line that day. If you've looked at the Irish schedule, I meant to bring a magazine out here, but I didn't. But if you look at their schedule, there are two, I think, glaring hurdles that jump out to the casual fan. The first is the one we're talking about right now. You know, they went to Georgia last year. And that was the big one everyone was talking about. This is where Notre Dame's going to get to measure themselves against the best of the best. Well, this year, there are two of them. One is against Wisconsin. I think people probably look at that matchup and they say, nah, matchup-wise, Notre Dame probably fits this challenge pretty well. And then you've got Clemson coming up, and they come into South Bend later in the season. But I think Notre Dame matches up pretty well in this game, but there's no margin for error and Notre Dame knows it going into this game because, as we said, they've got a date against Clemson. You can lose to Clemson and still be squarely in the mix for the college football playoff. But you lose to Wisconsin, you give yourself no margin for error. And also, if we see a Notre Dame team lose to Wisconsin, Wisconsin's a very solid team. I'm going to get to them in a second. But if they can't answer that challenge, what is the likelihood that they'll be equipped to answer the challenge of Clemson later? Now, Wisconsin's schedule, extremely interesting. Here's where this game falls. They play Notre Dame the week after they go to Michigan. So it's very exciting just within the context of Badger football to A, ask who's going to be playing quarterback. That's for our Badger fans. And B, for our national college football fans, you could just ask yourself, what Wisconsin team? Like, what, what are we looking at? Who are they when they come in here? You got two possibilities. Either they are flying sky high, probably undefeated, coming off a win at Michigan, in which case everyone's all of a sudden put them on their national radar if they weren't already, and it's time to validate that sentiment against Notre Dame, or they've lost against Michigan, in which case we find them as our pal J.C. Sherbert so aptly puts it in wounded animal mode. Either way, it's really fun to watch. Quarterback situation I mentioned just a second ago, that's a fun little follow-up. 
If you are in the national preview magazine crowd, if you're in the scan the team previews crowd and you don't really dive in, and I don't blame you, you got a life to live, but if you're not a diehard Wisconsin fan, you know, if you're if you're an Arkansas football fan, you probably don't know a whole lot about Wisconsin right now, unless you've made it a point to learn about them. But you do know one thing. You knew you know they've had a quarterback there for about 15 years named Jack Cohn. Pause button, who I erroneously referred to has come to my attention as Jack Doan. Colin, I didn't tell you this. I referred to this kid, no lie, as Jack Doan for an entire segment recently. And Jack Doan is a former pro wrestling referee, like circa late 90s WWF. And so I called that kid Jack Doan. I don't think it's a slight because Jack Doan was very good at his job. But this is not Jack Doan. Doesn't even look like him. This is Jack Cohn. Jack Cohn is, press play again, Jack Cohn is the uh, Wisconsin quarterback. And if you're of the national variety as a fan, that's pretty much what you know about the Wisconsin quarterback situation. But if you zoom in on it a little bit, there's a kid who has been there a couple of years now, Graham Mertz. And he is nothing more than a name on a depth chart if you don't know about this program. But if you do know about this program, oh boy, there, there are some rumblings. There are some very loud whispers. Think about the loudest anyone's ever whispered anything to you. And that is how Wisconsin folks are talking to each other about this kid's potential. And here's basically the 10-second synopsis. We like Jack Cohn and Jack Doan. We like both of them, but we really like Jack Cohn. But we think we've seen our ceiling with him. And if our goal here, this is going to go longer than 10 seconds. If our goal here is to go further than just being a nice little Big Ten team, then we need a dynamic presence at quarterback. And while we don't definitively know what we could get with Graham Mertz, we think his upside is better. I say all that to say this. He's probably not starting week one, but by the time we get to this October 3rd date against Notre Dame, who's at quarterback? Uh, is Paul Christ using both guys? Just a little something to think about there. But if Wisconsin exits this game with a whim, and if they're undefeated, if they come out of this game undefeated, uh, let me read you their remaining schedule. You tell me where the big remaining hurdle is. They've got, I can't even read that. I think I wrote Minnesota. At Maryland, Illinois, at Northwestern. Anything yet? No. At Purdue, Nebraska, at Iowa. What I'm telling you is, if they come out of this game with a win, they're favored the rest of the way. There are a couple of different playoff scenarios. There are a couple of different paths. Obviously, they could run the table. They could win the conference. They could drop a game, win the conference, they're in. So win the conference, you're going to be in. But then all of a sudden, if Wisconsin exits this game, let me tell you why it's so big. If they win that game, it boosts their resume mightily. And if they exit that one with a win and they're undefeated, then you start asking yourself as the weeks go by, and the playoff picture starts to emerge a little more, you start asking yourself, wait a second, Wisconsin's already proven itself a couple of times. Maybe they've beaten Michigan. Maybe they've beaten Notre Dame. And it looks like they're going to go to the Big Ten title game. Maybe they play Ohio State or Penn State. If they play that team close and the playoff picture is muddier than we thought it would be, you got Paul Crisk and company sitting there and maybe they don't take home the conference championship, but maybe they fight like heck in the conference championship game. There's a path where a one-loss non-conference champion, Wisconsin, is in the picture there. Just a number of different scenarios. But if Notre Dame wins that thing, different story. If Notre Dame wins that and they're still undefeated, then we get about a month, I think it's four weeks later, after this game against Wisconsin, where we start thinking about Clemson's probably biggest test of the year. It's an out-of-conference game on the road at Notre Dame. And we start asking ourselves, could it happen? 
Could it? Is the team speed there? That's always the question about Notre Dame. Team speed, when they go up against Georgia or they go up against Alabama or Clemson in this case, team speed. Yeah, we saw it before and you can argue it was a misleading final score the last time those two teams played all you want to and I would agree with you, but the bottom line is the final was what it was. So, Notre Dame versus Wisconsin. Now, I know before I read my comment section, because I know my audience fairly well, a lot of you are going to scream, what about Texas at LSU? That's valid. Very valid. That's a game I plan on being at, hopefully. We're going to talk about LSU in just a second. That one you could easily go with. I just chose to go that direction. I mean, I know we excluded Ohio State from this uh, for argument's sake, but you know, Ohio State goes to Oregon in week two. If Oregon were to clear that hurdle, how about that? Just some things to think about. That week two, by the way, go look at week two. There's some off-the-radar games. You know, th there are some games that really could have a major national impact. I'll show you. I'll prove it right now that you don't even know about unless you've looked at a helmet schedule, unless you've just been waking up every morning and studying the helmet grid schedule. You know, you know in week two, Texas plays LSU. You probably know Ohio State goes to Oregon. Like, there are some big-time games, but... There's a random game, probably in your eyes, unless you're a fan of one of these programs, in Atlanta in week two, and it's Auburn versus North Carolina. Both of those programs fancy themselves as outside college football playoff contenders. Both of those programs fancy themselves as conference championship contenders. Is anyone even talking about that game? No. So just, it's not a conference game, mind you, but a measuring stick, absolutely it is. All right, how do I broach this topic? I just, I, I guess I'll just dive right in. Have you had a conversation about LSU lately? Have you made statements about LSU lately? Let's remove LSU fans and supporters, and let's just let them watch us talk amongst ourselves. I've noticed there exists no common ground, apparently, anymore when it comes to LSU. I'm asking you, where is the middle ground? I'm alone here. I feel utterly and totally alone. It's just like an island and any kind of rationale, any kind of common sense and logic-based conclusions that you've arrived at with LSU is met with either you better think they're dropping to eight and four or they're going to win a national title again. There's no middle ground. So the popular sentiment, and it's growing by the day that I've noticed, is LSU is falling off big time this year. Like LSU is going to fall way back to earth. And if I give any kind of pushback on that, the automatic follow-up is, oh, so I guess you think they're going to recreate what they did last year? You think they're going to lose all those players and just do that all over again? I don't remember saying that. I hadn't heard anyone say that. I haven't even heard most of my LSU brethren say that. It's just that I don't quite think they're falling to eight and four. I don't think that they're all of a sudden fighting to get into the Music City Bowl. So I think probably the reality is somewhere between the two, and they're still going to be a really good program. I still think they're ultra talented. I think Miles Brennan probably is a solid quarterback, and I don't believe, in fact, let me definitively state, I know they're not going back philosophically to what they were offensively. They're not going to duplicate the numbers they just put up last year. Let me spoil the ending for you. Nobody is. Not LSU, not Bama, Clemson, Ohio State. Nobody is. They could do 60% of what they did last year and have a phenomenal season this year and challenge for the SEC West. All these things can be true. So I'm on the middle ground, at least I think I am right here, and let's talk about this because I'm not just talking about 2020. Some folks are just talking about 2020. I mean, they're going to have a tough time this year. But at the same time, 
no one's going to feel sorry for them. But I look at their roster and I'm saying, all due respect to Tulsa, this it's not like we've dropped Tulsa into Baton Rouge and said, all right, have at it. Good luck making a bowl. Same head coaches there. Um, you're going to argue, you know, um, well, you lose a Heisman quarterback. Certainly you do. Well, a lot of guys have gone off to the draft. Yes, they have. Well, you lost some coaches. Sure did. As far as I can tell, they have that in common with pretty much every other championship team in recent history in college football. You don't always lose the quarterback, but the bottom line is you hardly ever bring the same team back. They have had a more radical transitioning period. I'll grant you that. But it doesn't mean they're falling off a cliff. So I want to address the crowd that thinks 2019 was just a standalone product. And it was a great story, and maybe you even pulled for LSU, but all the while, as soon as the confetti was done falling, uh, where were we? In New Orleans, as soon as it was done, and as soon as we stalked Ed Orgeron and we shot this video of him walking off the field in New Orleans and up the tunnel, as soon as that was over, so too were the chances for LSU to ever challenge for the SEC or national championship again. And I don't believe that. So I just want to know what does regress back to form mean? What does return to form mean? Because they felt like a nine and a half win caliber program per year before this happened, even with that offense that was nothing to write home about. When I say caliber team, I'm not talking about your actual record. I'm talking about your play, if, if you play an average college football schedule a hundred times with any given team, what is their average result? And I feel like they were operating at about a nine and a half, nine and three quarter win caliber as a program even before last year happened. So with all due respect, returning to what they were wouldn't be half bad. I think they're going to be a tick up from what they were. I think their resting point is going to be a tick up from what they were. So I'm going to tell you what changed for last year's team. And I want you to think in your own mind, if you disagree with me here, many of you do, which I'm fine with, and I've gone back and forth with some of you, not all of you though. So if we haven't talked already and you disagree with me, I'm going to tell you what happened last year. You tell me which of these metrics, which of these boxes they checked last year, they're not going to be able to check anymore. Number one, there was an administrative overhaul. Scott Woodward came in. There was a complete change in the direction and the vision of the program. You could argue how much impact this had on them last year because it was still pretty fresh. I don't think you can argue from talking to people close to the program about the impact it's having now and moving forward. Scott Woodward's not going anywhere. The changes they've made in their athletic department, they're not going anywhere. It's important. It's important budgetarily. It's important for getting facilities signed off on. It's important for getting staff enhancements signed off on. That's a fancy word for adding more bodies that we didn't previously have on our payroll. But also, a lot of other departments, like those graphics that you saw last year, that didn't used to come out of LSU. So there are a lot of things administratively they changed last year. I don't think that's going anywhere. I think there was a new implementation of program culture last year. That was obvious. I don't think it was a one-year thing. Now, this is where it's going to be a remains-to-be-seen sort of deal. I guess if you disagree with me, I don't have any evidence of this that doesn't already exist that I could bring to you, but I feel very convicted in saying it, and I don't think we'll have to watch too long this fall to see whether that's true or not. The commitment to a new offensive vision and a new offensive philosophy, absent of who's at quarterback, absent of which receivers you have or offensive linemen you have any given year, even absent of which guys outside of Steve Ensminger we have in the offensive coaches box any given year. 
That's not philosophy. Those are people. It's the philosophy which is ultimately handed down. The vision of the program is handed down by the head man who's still there just as he was last year at Orgeron. Are they still bought into the same offensive philosophy? I don't. I think they are. I don't think they're ever returning. I think he would retire and hurl himself in front of a freight train before he allowed that program to return to a philosophical standpoint that they were previously offensively. So I don't think that's changing. And I also look around, and I don't think they're going to hurt for talent. I don't think they're going to hurt, and this is important, for recruiting the quarterback position anymore. Let's again make this year independent of what we're talking about long-term. You may believe in Miles Brennan, you may not believe in Miles Brennan, but even if you don't fully believe in Miles Brennan and he's no better than an eight and four caliber quarterback, of course I think you're wrong, but even if you don't think that Miles Brennan can get the job done, look around. They just brought Garrett Nussmeyer in, well he's verbally committed, but they are in it and are going to be in it. I hate to break this news to you guys, but they're going to be in it for the foreseeable future for not only big-time prep quarterbacks, but also big-time potential transfer quarterbacks. It should tell you a lot that they didn't go more aggressively after JT Daniels as it relates to what they think about what they've currently got going on right now. But if it presents itself, and if it looks like they need to go the transfer route, it wouldn't have been viable previously. Because previously, Ed Orgeron calls up a kid who is looking to transfer and says, I want you to come to LSU. And he gets laughed at, probably not to his face, but he gets laughed at because a kid looks at LSU and says, well, that's a death sentence. Like, I want to play on Sundays. You guys have been horrible at developing quarterback and skill talent for Sunday ball. Well, guess what they saw now? They saw now that there's a total change in the culture, a total overturn on offensive philosophy, and you don't need many more reasons. LSU sells itself. You just needed an offense that also sold itself. You've got that. So they're, I don't think, going to hurt for quarterback talent. They are not going back to Miles Ball. I'm just telling you, they're not going back to that. That man, Ed Orgeron, will retire before he allows that to happen. So if you disagree, and I know a number of you do, that's why the comment sections are open. That's why my Twitter DMs are open. I want you to give me logic-based reasons why this program is not going to be able to perennially contend for a college football playoff spot. Because to be clear, that's what I think they're going to be. I think they're going to be, for the foreseeable future, a perennial contender for a college football playoff spot. I don't think that losing guys to the draft is going to cut their legs out from under them. I don't think losing assistant coaches is going to cut their legs out from under them. I don't think everyone focusing their attention on them is going to necessarily cut their legs out from under them. They have that in common, again, with every team that's ever won a championship. To some degree, every team's dealt with that. They're going to deal with internal issues. They're going to deal with drama, some you hear about, some you never hear about. They're going to deal with guys going to the draft, guys transferring, injury. They're going to deal with all that stuff. I think the foundation that that program's built on now is a lot more sustainable for the foreseeable future than the foundation that it was previously built on. That's where I stand on LSU doubters. All right, let's wrap it up here with a continuation of our series that we've been doing. It's kind of been about the most important figures in college football. I know Barton Simmons is also doing a version of this right now, and he's putting out his own list. It's players, it's coaches, it's coordinators, it's all kind of different people. I'm not limiting this to just players, but I'm also not going to do Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence. These are obvious names. I'm going to go a little bit beyond that 
And tonight I want to go to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I want to talk about Josh Gaddis. Josh Gaddis is the offensive coordinator at Michigan. And I think about Michigan right now. I always think about programs that are making changes, sort of like I do a firecracker. And you can think about the different kinds. I mean, if you grew up where I'm from and knew that there was a fireworks stand on pretty much every corner, if you go across the river into Alabama, now they're legal in Georgia, but they used to not be, you would look at the different fuses. And not all fuses are alike. Some of them, you light them and you got to get out of there really quick. And it doesn't take long from the time that you light that fuse to the time that something goes bang. Other times, you light that fuse and it takes a little while. It's longer. It's got a little more burn length on it. And then sometimes you light one and then you go hide behind the log and you got the fingers in the ears, if you're soft, and nothing ever happens. And it just fizzles. And that's the same way a program is. That's the same way a change at offensive coordinator is. I think Josh Gaddis is one of the very most important people in college football in 2020, but I'm telling you right now, we have seen his hiring, his first season was last year, it had some, I think, promising results down the stretch, second half, let's say, of Michigan's season. Everyone's sitting around waiting and wondering, how long is the fuse? Is it gonna go bang? Is our offense at Michigan gonna go bang? And if it is, is it a three-year deal? Is it as soon as he starts his second year, even though we're replacing a quarterback and we're replacing four offensive linemen and we got uncertainty here and there, is it just going to go bang anyway? Is the cumulative effect of this system taking root going to overrule all that? That's what they're wondering. That's what I'm wondering right along with you at Michigan. So what I think we do know is I think people are pretty fed up with status quo. Now, this is not a criticized Jim Harbaugh segment. I think even the supporters of Jim Harbaugh probably look around and say, okay, now, while I'm not piling on this guy, we're six years in here now, it's time the program makes the next step. We're better than we were when he got here. That's the definition of improvement. We've gotten better. But now we want to be up there, and we're not up there yet. And offense is what's holding us back making big plays, stretching the field, people fearing the product that we put on the field offensively, that doesn't exist. It needs to exist. Now, Jim Harbaugh, to his credit, understood the problem and thinks he found the solution. Solution, like I said, it's not always light it and it goes bang. Sometimes it takes a little while. So for all we know, as I've detailed a couple of times in the last month or so on this show, for all we know, the changes that need to be made at Michigan have already been made. Maybe that change is Josh Gaddis. Maybe he, in turn, is going to implement a culture and an offensive system that goes bang this year. And it goes bang on the recruiting trail, and all of a sudden, Michigan looks totally different from 2023 and beyond than it has to this point in Jim Harbaugh's tenure. I was over earlier today on our 24-7 Sports Michigan site, themichiganinsider.com. Really fun place, really good conversation over there. And I did what sometimes I do if I know I'm going to talk about something on that night's show. I value your opinion on your team more than I value my opinion. You, most cases, know more about your team than I do. I may have some nuggets here and there I pick up through connections, but you follow this day to day. So I wanted to know from the Horace's mouths, what are your expectations? Michigan's offense, number one, and Josh Gaddis overall, number two, what do you want to see from him this year? And there were several really well-thought-out, well-articulated responses, but the general theme was explosive plays. That's where we got to get better. I mean, yes, we've got question marks along the O-line. Yes, we've got question marks at quarterback. But bottom line is, aside from personnel, offensively, 
we got to be able to stretch the field. We don't make big plays. No one cares. We shrink the field on ourselves before any defense does it on us. I agree with all that. And I agree. Listen, I agree it'll be shaky early. They've got a game at Washington to start the season. There's a lot of you know overturning chairs out in Washington too, new staff. So find a way. I don't care if you win it three to two. Auburn and Mississippi State had a three to two game a generation ago. Just win that one. But every week that we go through that they can stay undefeated this year and get one more week's worth of practice and get one more game under their belt, they hopefully get closer and closer to an offensive product that is viable. And despite having a new quarterback and despite having four offensive linemen, if you look deeper, here's what I hope. What I hope is at some point in 2020, not 21 and beyond, 2020, we're looking and we're saying, you know what? I remember reading a preview magazine about Michigan this year, and I remember watching the preview and prediction shows, and no one picked this team to do much of anything, and it's because they were talking about, don't know who the quarterback's going to be, don't know what they're going to have there, all these new starters on the offensive line. But you know what happened? As it turns out, the new system had taken root And it ended up offsetting all of these question marks we had. That's a perfect world. That's where you hope you are at some point this year with Michigan. But whether it's Dylan McCaffrey, whether it's Joe Milton, for those unfamiliar, those are the two guys vying for this quarterback position. It's probably McCaffrey. Look, I don't know. I know you guys have your opinion on that. Irrelevant, my opinion, here's what I want to know. Whoever it is, or maybe they use both of them a fair amount, whatever it is at quarterback, I just want to know, What is the quarterback production this year relative to the potential of the quarterback position? That's going to tell me what I need to know long-term. I mean, you have a maximum potential for any football player on any team. Quarterback's no different at Michigan. No different. So you put Dylan McCaffrey on the field. Is it the same thing that we said at times with Shea Patterson where we're watching and we, we just, man, I know that we and he are capable of so much more. Where is it? Don't know. If we're still saying that, Now, if we're still saying that next year, then you start to lose confidence. But right now, I think a lot of people are brimming with confidence. And I think Jim Harbaugh is included among that group because I think that he believes he made the right move. And for his sake, I hope he did. That's what we got for you tonight. Now, remember the Late Kick Extra podcast. It's available right now. It's 24 hours old. So it is evergreen. That's an industry term for it'll be as relevant two weeks from now as it is today. So go check that out. Leave us a five-star review and uh, leave a written review. That's the best place to ask a question is in the written review. We'll be back here the same time Sunday night with uh, Colin directing and with Aaron doing some post edits and Tani handling the podcast. I wanted to give you guys a quick thank you before we go off the air. By my calculations which are far from exact, we're probably going to top 20,000 subscribers on this YouTube channel either tonight or tomorrow. And that's a very, very significant accomplishment, and it's well ahead of where we thought we would be on the channel. And of course, we can't subscribe to ourselves. That's all you. That's all you're doing. And so from myself and a lot of other people here whose voices you don't get to hear or faces you get to see, thank you for that. And we plan on giving you a lot more of what you want as long as you keep telling us what you want in the near future. And everyone has every finger that they possess crossed that we get an actual football season to talk about. So until Sunday night, again, for Colin, for Aaron, for Tani, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great weekend. God bless.